0: Hey folks, it's your monthly reminder that this summer CrimeCon in partnership with CBS Reality is back in London on Saturday the 11th and Sunday the 12th of June and yours truly will be there with bells on. The detective dogs will be back and I can't wait to see them and guests include a host of professionals working in all parts of the criminal justice system, researchers on everything from psychology to forensics, and the creators of amazing documentaries. There are even a few speakers who've found themselves on the wrong side of the law. Podcast Row is even bigger and better this year too. All of your favourites from home and abroad will be there. Nicola Talent, crime reporter and host of Crime World is joining us. And I'm excited to meet Robin from The Trail Went Cold. And hang out again with the lads from Generation Y, Esther from Once Upon a Crime, the lovely folks at They Walk Among Us, and Paul from The True Crime Enthusiast. There will be podcast live shows, and I'll be hosting a roundtable discussion with a few of my pod friends, talking shop, and behind the scenes. Plus, the immersive CSI experience this year sounds amazing. No spoilers, but I am ready for it. I'm so excited to have been invited back to CrimeCon again, and I hope I'll get to see you there. Limited tickets are available now, and make sure to use the code MENSREA for your special 10% discount, and to let CrimeCon know I sent you. To get your tickets or for more information, head to crimecon.co.uk. You're listening to the Mensreia podcast. And this is the story of Amanda Jenkins. <laughs> In October of 2007, Amanda Jenkins was 27 years old and she lived in James Street in a flat owned by Oakley Social Housing at the Anna Olivia Apartment Complex. Amanda was from a well-known and well-respected family from the Dublin 8 area. She worked in a fruit and veg shop on James's Street not far from her home. She was particularly close with her mother, Anne. Amanda had grown up living with her parents, John and Anne, in the York Street area of the South Inner City. She attended school in Whitefriar Street and had a reputation for being the kind of person who would look out for others, and she was popular with her classmates. When she left school, she worked with her mother as a chef in a nearby pub for a number of years, and the two lived together in Bride Street. Then, around 2005, Amanda's mother Anne moved to Rutland Street and Amanda got the opportunity to strike out on her own in the flat in James Street. Amanda thought of the place as her own private sanctuary. On Saturday the 6th of October 2007, Anne had tried ringing her daughter a number of times but hadn't been able to speak to her. She was a little worried but not overly concerned. However, the next day, as Anne looked at the morning's headlines, she saw the news that the body of a woman had been discovered in the James Street area. Anne immediately feared the worst. This fear was confirmed just before noon that day. A knock on the door came and Anne found Gardee on her doorstep, delivering the devastating news that Amanda was dead. That Sunday morning, Gardy had entered the top floor flat in the Anna Olivia apartment block and found the body of Amanda Jenkins inside, lying on her bedroom floor. Early reports were that she had been strangled in the early hours of that morning. The apartment was sealed off and a detailed forensic examination was carried out in the flat. Amanda's body lay in situ for a number of hours to facilitate part of this. She was then brought to the city morgue for autopsy, where the chief state pathologist confirmed that Amanda had died of asphyxiation. Meanwhile, neighbours spoke to the press and said that Amanda was a well-liked and friendly woman. One woman said, she had the nice old way about her and was a very genuine girl. Locals had noted that the fruit and veg shop next to the block of flats had not been opened on Saturday, but they thought Amanda must have been unwell and were then shocked to learn that she had died. Just after the discovery of the young woman's body, Gardie arrested a man found at a location described as close to the scene. The Evening Herald reported that the man was well known to the Gardie and was thought to have links to dissident republican circles. He had been suspected of involvement in so-called punishment beatings carried out by the real IRA. The Irish Independent reported that he had served out a lengthy sentence in Portleash Prison and had a number of previous convictions for serious offences. He was arrested under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act and questioned over 24 hours that Sunday and Monday. On the morning of Tuesday, the 9th of October, 32 year old Stephen Carney appeared before Kilmainham District Court charged with the murder. His address was also given as the Anna Olivia Apartments on James's Street and he was described as Amanda's partner. Detective Inspector J.J. Keene gave evidence of arrest and caution on Monday night at 10 past 10. The court was told that in response to the charge, Mr. Carney had said I'm sorry. Stephen Carney was then remanded in custody to Cloverhill Prison. The short hearing was packed, filled with Amanda's family and friends. Anne, her mother, was distraught and was comforted by John, Amanda's father, and other relations. Louise Hogan, reporting for the Irish Independent, noted that security was tighter than normal at this district court hearing. Amanda's uncle Robert McLean spoke to the press that day. He had been given the horrible task of formally identifying Amanda's body to Gardi before Mary Cassidy carried out the post-mortem examination. There were delays, however, in the release of Amanda's body back to her family, as an an independent examination could be sought by Stephen Carney's defence team. Again, her uncle Robert spoke to the media and said, This is having an awful effect on our family. It's bad enough that Amanda was taken from us in the way that she was, but then to have to endure these delays is just harrowing. They were anxious to make funeral arrangements to begin the grieving process, and had even written to the then Minister for Justice, Brian Lenehan, to seek to have the second autopsy expedited. The delay was caused by a difficulty in scheduling time for an independent pathologist to carry out the examination, given that there are very few such doctors in the jurisdiction not employed by the state. And so it was that two weeks after her death, Amanda Jenkins' funeral mass took place in St. Patrick's Church in Ringsend on the 20th of October. Two hundred of her family, friends, and neighbours filled the church to mourn their loss. The Requiem Mass was officiated by Father Fergal MacDonough, who noted that the name Amanda was of ancient Greek origin, meaning one who is deserving of love and compassion he said that it was fitting that they were all gathered there to mourn someone who was indeed deserving of love and compassion, which had not been present for Amanda in the moments when she died. During his eulogy, the priest comforted the Jenkins and McLean families, saying, although this is the end of Amanda's physical presence, love transcends death and she will always be near to us. Amanda was then laid to rest in Palmerstown Cemetery. This episode is sponsored in part by Calm. It's time for a break. This is technically an ad break, but our partners at Calm want you to focus on yourself for a moment. Take a deep breath and let it out. Relax wherever you're holding your tension. It's important to tune in and recenter, and Calm can help. We're partnering with Calm, the number one mental wellness app, to give you the tools that improve the way you feel. Reduce stress and anxiety through guided meditations, improve focus with curated music tracks, and rest and recharge with Calm's imaginative sleep stories for children and adults. There's even new daily movement sessions designed to relax your body and uplift your mind. If you go to calm.com forward slash mens, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription, and new content is added every week. Over 100 million people around the world use Calm to take care of their minds. Calm is ready to help you stress less, sleep more, and live a happier, healthier life. For listeners of this show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at com.com forward slash mens. Go to calm.com slash mens for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's com.com slash mens. On Tuesday the 4th of November 2008, Stephen Kearney appeared before the Central Criminal Court in Dublin, with Mr Justice Paul Kearney presiding, alongside a jury of eight men and four women. The defendant pleaded not guilty to the charge of murdering Amanda Jenkins. However, as set out by his defence counsel, Mr Michael O'Higgins, Kearney accepted that he had strangled Amanda Jenkins and was the cause of her death. Mr O'Higgins went on to explain to the jury that because of this there were certain facts that were not at issue in the trial and to shorten the procedure overall these had been agreed between the defence and the prosecution. Defence counsel also acknowledged that his client accepted he had been dealt with humanely by the Gardaí and that evidence in the case had been handled correctly. In his opening statement Dermot McGuinness appearing on behalf of the DPP reiterated that Carney acknowledged he had caused Amanda Jenkins' death, but the prosecuting counsel went on to say that, regardless, the defendant would retain his presumption of innocence and the jury should keep an open mind regarding the evidence or otherwise against Carney for Amanda's murder. Mr McGuinness went on to outline that Carney had spoken to Gardee during the interviews after his arrest about the events leading up to Amanda's death. The defendant had told police that he and Amanda Jenkins lived together in the Ann Olivia apartment. That Friday evening, Amanda had finished work and gone home. Carney himself had come in about an hour later and there was an argument, purportedly about the smell of cannabis smoke in the home. Carney had described how Amanda had been sitting on the couch while he was standing yelling. He'd leaned down towards her and she gave him a quote, clatter across the face. With that, Carney said he'd grabbed Amanda's throat and strangled her. On Sunday morning, Carney had rung the emergency services a number of times and told the dispatcher that he was after killing his girlfriend. Amanda had lain dead on the bedroom floor for 40 hours before the authorities arrived. Recordings of these 999 calls were played for the court. Carney could be heard on the tape saying that he had strangled his girlfriend with his hands. And he had tried to kill himself. He asked for Gardee to come and take him away. He said he had had a blade and had cut himself, but that he'd thrown that into a bin. Next, Anne Jenkins, Amanda's mother, took to the stand. She testified that Amanda had called her at about 8 p.m. that Friday night after she got back in from work. The next day, Saturday, Anne said she'd got two calls from the defendant. Carney had told her that Amanda had quit her job and that she was in bed asleep and her mobile phone was out of battery. Later, Carney called again and told Anne not to answer the phone if Amanda's boss rang her. Anne had also called Carney that day at about half past two in the afternoon. She was looking for Amanda but Carney had told her that Amanda was still asleep and wasn't feeling well. Anne told Carney then to look after her daughter. And Kearney had responded, quote, Of course I will. After this testimony, Amanda's boss and co-workers told the court that Amanda had been due to open the grocer's shop on Saturday morning, but she hadn't shown up. A co worker, Catherine O'Connor, had texted Stephen Kearney to ask if Amanda was okay, and it was her evidence that Kearney had responded that he would ring her in an hour and apologized. Then Paul Maher Outlined how he had arrived at the Anna Olivia apartments on Sunday morning in response to Stephen Carney's 999 call. Gardi had arrived and entered the complex with the door code that Carney had given them. Gardemaher said that the defendant was visibly upset and had directed him to a bedroom where Amanda lay covered with a duvet. Gardemaher had then cautioned Carney, and the defendant had stated to him, quote, I tried to cut myself. That didn't even work. I strangled my girlfriend on Friday night. A doctor was called who pronounced Amanda dead and a priest followed shortly after who stood at a distance from her body to preserve the scene and administered the last rites. Stephen Carney was arrested at the scene and brought to a Garda car outside. There he had told Garda Maher, I tried to ring you on Friday but I couldn't. I was off the drink until last Friday. Then I had drink and drugs. Other statements were read to the court which detailed Stephen Carney's movements earlier on the day that Amanda died. He'd been in a pub and at a bookie's where he spent a large sum on betting on the races. Garda Peter Clifford took to the stand and relayed that there was CCTV in the Anna Olivia complex and a swipe card key system. From this, it was determined that Amanda Jenkins had entered the building at a quarter to eight that Friday evening. Kearney had entered and exited the complex a number of times over the weekend. In court the following day, Wednesday the 5th of November, Professor Mary Cassidy, the Chief State Pathologist, took to the stand. She had arrived to the flat in James's Street and observed that it was tidy and well-kept, apart from some small blood and fluid stains that she noted on the living room floor. When she entered the bedroom, Amanda Jenkins' body was on the floor, lying face up. Her head was on a pillow. Dr Cassidy noted that there was strong bruising, referred to as congestion, to Amanda's face, and the pathologist said that she was purplish in colour, nearly matching the shade of the pillow that Amanda's head had rested on. This congestion had been caused by a blocking of the blood vessels in Amanda's neck. During post-mortem, bruising was noted on Amanda's neck and the small hyoid bone in her neck had been snapped. There were abrasions to the left side of her jaw and Dr Cassidy described small scratch marks on Amanda's neck which might have been caused by fingernails. The pathologist said that when she examined Amanda Jenkins' body, she came to the conclusion that Amanda had been dead for more than 24 hours as rigor mortis was wearing off. Amanda had been placed on the floor where she was found after she had died. Her cause of death was neck compression or strangulation. There was no evidence that there had been any attempt of resuscitation nor that there had been a protracted struggle. Pictures of the scene and Amanda's body were shown to the jury, showing how her body had been positioned in the room and Amanda's face. In these two photos, there was a clear differentiation between the pallor of Amanda's skin, the bruising around her neck, and the blue-purple areas of congestion left by the effects of strangulation. As this evidence was given, Anne Jenkins, who had been listening from the public gallery, became distressed and reporter Aoife Finneran for the Evening Herald said she was shaking uncontrollably. Anne was struggling terribly while trying to listen to the evidence of the state pathologist. Family members surrounded Anne in support, her sisters stroking her arm to try and help her keep calm, but eventually it all became too much and Mrs Jenkins stood bolt upright and left the courtroom, unable to hear any more. Nicola Anderson, writing for the Irish Independent, said others in the courtroom were deeply affected by watching her in such distress, unable to do anything to ease her pain. Anne's siblings rose quietly as she left the court to follow, to provide what support they could for her out in the hall. Mary Cassidy was then cross-examined and said that pressure would have had to be applied to Amanda's neck for at least a number of seconds for the injuries observed to result, but it was impossible to say how long exactly. Stephen Kearney sat throughout the description of his former partner's death with no visible emotion, though he stared intently at the witness, listening carefully to the evidence presented. After this, a statement made by Stephen Carney's mother, Joan, was read to the court. Carney had gone to a post office and then to a bookie's that Friday afternoon. Just after 11pm, Joan said she'd seen her son in a pub in Rialto. She recalled having seen some scratches on his face, but she'd thought nothing of it at the time. Mrs. Carney continued, quote, He wasn't himself, but he never said what was wrong with him. Looking back on it, he was very quiet and not his usual happy self. The next day, Saturday, Joan had rang Carney. He told her that he was in the pub and Joan stated that she'd given out to him a little about this and had told him to go home. What remained of the state's case against Stephen Kearney then related to the series of interviews conducted with the defendant after his arrest at Kilmainham Garda station over the two days he was held there. The court was shown a video of an interview conducted with Stephen Carney on Sunday the 7th of October. The defendant admitted that he had killed Amanda but said he had not intended to do this. Kearney told Gardee that he had tried to call for help on Friday evening after the fight but he wasn't able to and so instead he'd left the flat after a while and started to drink. The court heard Carney tell Gardee, What the fuck have I done? Oh Jesus. Carney was disheveled looking on the footage and appeared to be in a state of disbelief with the reality of what had happened coming over him periodically, where he became emotional. He told Gardie that he and Amanda had known each other for ten years, and they'd been together for seven. He'd been drinking during the day that Friday when he came home, and he'd smelled what he thought was smoke from cannabis. They started yelling, Amanda had slapped him, and Carney admitted he'd put his hands around her neck. Amanda had fallen to the floor and Carney had continued to strangle her, watching her face turn blue until she stopped moving. After Kearney realised that Amanda had died, he said he didn't know what to do so he'd pulled her body into the bedroom and left to go get drunk. Later, he returned to the flat that they had shared but had continued on his binge. Carney told Gardie that earlier that day, Sunday morning, He'd tried to hang himself and after that he'd tried to cut his wrists. Then he took a number of tablets. Finally, he rang 999. He told Gardy, I just want to die. I'll get it right next time, trust me. What's the point of living? Gardy asked outright if Stephen Kearney had meant to kill Amanda and he said that he hadn't, that he just wanted to frighten her. It had just been a stupid row. Kearney explained that the place was smoky and smelled and he'd cursed at her and told her to go open a fucking window. In response, Carney alleged that Amanda had told him to fuck off. Evidence of Carney's Garda interviews continued the following day with Garda David Ennis on the stand, where the court heard further details of what Carney said he had done that weekend. Carney had told him that the Friday before had been a day like any other. Amanda had been up early to go to work in the fruit and veg shop. Stephen Carney had been up early too, as he had an appointment at a FOSS office near Pier Street. Carney explained that he had wanted to attend a forklift driving course through the Education and Employment Service, and had also been planning on getting CVs printed out in preparation for looking for a new job. He'd been unemployed for the last ten months, he said. After he was done at the FOSS office, Carney said he'd also gone to a recruitment office in Inchicore and when he was finished there, he'd gone to a pub for a drink. Kearney told Gardee he'd been off alcohol for three months prior to that visit. He'd also gone to the bookies and placed several bets on horse races. Kearney had won about a grand and a half, but the defendant admitted during this interview that he had spent at least half of that that weekend on drink and cocaine. Kearney had said, quote, I'd no intentions of hurting her. I don't know what made me react the way I reacted. Again, the defendant said he'd only taken his hands off Amanda's throat when her face went blue. One of the interviewing Gardi suggested to Carney that he had had his hands on Amanda's throat too long for this to have been an accident. In response, Carney insisted that it had been. He didn't know why he didn't stop, but said he'd had drink on him and he didn't think he'd been hurting Amanda that much. Carney said he had no idea why it was that he'd become so angry that evening when he came in. He had stayed in the apartment for about two hours after he strangled Amanda, having put a pillow under her head and covered her with a duvet. Kearney continued, quote, I just sat there looking at her, crying. I kept slapping her face and saying, Wake up, Mandy. Wake up, love. Eventually, he'd showered, changed his clothes and left the flat to walk to Kevin Street Garda station, but he'd only made it halfway there before turning around. He'd got into a taxi and went to a pub. There, the defendant had seen his father, and Kearney told Gardy that he'd wanted to tell his dad what he'd done, but he didn't get a chance. At that time, the defendant didn't recall where he'd spent the rest of the night drinking. Kearney also admitted that the following day, Saturday, he had drank a bottle of vodka and consumed a large amount of cocaine to block out what he had done. He met up with friends during the day, having only returned to the Ann Olivia flat for about ten minutes that morning. Further memos of Carney's garda interviews were read to the court by Barrister Cormac Quinn, appearing alongside Mr. McGuinness for the director of public prosecutions. Stephen Kearney had later recalled that after leaving the pub that his father was in, He'd gone to a friend's house for a drinking session where he'd stayed most of the night. The defendant had described waking up on the Sunday morning, saying he had slept next to Amanda's body, and told Gardie he he'd left the flash to go to a local petrol station. There he bought cigarettes and two packets of anodin aspirin tablets, which he would take later. During this interview, Gardie had asked Carney if he thought that Amanda might have been saved had he rang for emergency services right away. Carney had responded that, yes, he thought so, but that he had panicked. Carney also said he didn't have a problem with Amanda smoking hash, though he insisted he didn't use the drug himself. He said he was annoyed that the place was full of smoke and smelled and Amanda had not opened a window. Carney had told police, Quote, I'm not that type of person, I wouldn't harm a fly, and, quote, I think my mind just went blank, I just lost it, I just put my hands around her neck. When asked whether he thought Amanda had fought back, Carney had responded, quote, I think so, yeah. Then Detective Garda David Ennis agreed with defence counsel Mr O'Higgins that his client Stephen Carney, had answered all of their questions willingly and had cooperated fully with the investigation. The evidence portion of the proceeding then concluded. On the fourth day of the trial, the 7th of November, Dermage McGuinness gave the prosecution's closing statement. He asked the jury to disregard what they had heard regarding Carney's three unsuccessful attempts at suicide, saying that it was not relevant and would not help them decide whether Kearney had intended to kill Amanda Jenkins or not. Mr McGinnis reminded them that there had been scratches present on Kearney's face and neck, indicating that Amanda had struggled with her then-partner and had fought for her life. After this, Michael O'Higgins gave his closing statement on behalf of Stephen Kearney. It was the defence case that Kearney had not intended to kill Amanda that evening, He had momentarily lost control in response to the argument that the two had had. Kearney had told Gardee the full truth when he rang them, and had in fact notified the authorities himself, albeit after a delay. Without having the intent to kill or seriously harm, the proper verdict in this case would be manslaughter, not murder, he said. Mr. Justice Kearney then gave his instructions to the jury, telling them that there were three verdicts open to them guilty of murder guilty of manslaughter or not guilty of any offence. The judge pointed out however that at no point had the defence argued that Stephen Kearney had committed no offence when he put his hands around Amanda Jenkins' neck. They were to be concerned with Kearney's intent at the time of Ms Jenkins' death and were to only find him guilty of murder if they were satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that Carney had intended to kill or seriously harm Amanda Jenkins that evening or if they were satisfied that the prosecution had rebutted the defence of provocation. Deliberations began that afternoon, but after three hours, the jury were sent to a hotel for the night. They resumed their discussions on Saturday morning. After an additional hour behind closed doors that morning, the eight men and four women of the jury returned with their verdict. They found Stephen Carney guilty of murdering Amanda Jenkins in their home the year before. The court then heard from Amanda's uncle, Robert McLean, who gave a victim impact statement on behalf of the family. Mr McLean described his niece as special and loving. Amanda was an only child and had had a very close relationship with her mother, who was now consumed by grief. Mr McLean said he barely recognised his sister now because of her daughter's loss. The Kearney family still had their son, Robert said, but all his family had left of Amanda were memories. Mr. O'Higgins, Carney's defense counsel, read a letter from his client to the court, where Carney apologized for the pain he had caused and said he would do anything to take back what he had done. After this, Stephen Carney's background was outlined for Mr. Justice Paul Carney. The court heard that Stephen Carney had a total of nine previous convictions, and two in particular were very serious in nature. Kearney had served eight years for involvement in an attempted hijack of a Secure Corps cash van in Ashford in 1998. The failed assault had been carried out by an armed gang allegedly linked to the real IRA, and Kearney had been arrested in the possession of a sawn off shotgun as he tried to flee the scene when he crashed a vehicle into two Garda cars. One man died in the incident, which concluded in a standoff between gang members and Gardee. Two years before this, in May of 1996, Kearney had been involved in an incident where a man had been kicked to death in what was described as a vigilante assault after a meeting of a community anti drugs organization in Dolphin's Barn. Two men who were known drug users were set upon by a group of other men who believed that they were involved in the sale of heroin. Kearney was sentenced to 20 months in February of 2000 for his role in that. The Irish Independent reported that Kearney was also suspected by Gardaí of being involved in witness intimidation in the run-up to a high-profile murder trial and that Kearney had been kicked out of his illegal paramilitary group after his release from prison because of the group's displeasure with Kearney's alleged violent and drunken behaviour. With the defendant's background duly outlined, Stephen Carney was then handed down the mandatory life sentence for the murder of Amanda Jenkins. Outside the court, after proceedings had concluded in Stephen Carney's trial, members of Amanda's family spoke to the press, thanking Gardy for their work. Robert McLean said that though justice had been done, this was a, quote, hollow victory, as it would not bring Amanda back. Another of Amanda's uncles, Damien Jenkins, said that Amanda had been a, quote, little angel, that she'd looked after everyone. The whole family were heartbroken. Later that weekend, Robert McLean spoke to Jason O'Brien for the Irish Independent. During this interview, Mr McLean alleged that Stephen Carney had been physically abusive towards Amanda Jenkins before she was killed. When Mr McLean heard that Carney had hit Amanda, he confronted the man. He'd approached Amanda, who was standing with Stephen Kearney, and asked what she was doing with a man like Carney, saying she could do much better. Carney then spoke up and said he'd heard what Mr McLean had said. Robert had responded that that had been his intention, and that, quote, a man that raises a hand to a woman doesn't deserve to be with her. Kearney had assured Mr McLean that the incident had been a one-off and that it would never happen again. Amanda's uncle went on to tell the reporter that, though the family knew Kearney had had run-ins with the Gardee, they had been unaware of the extent of it. He had had no idea why Amanda had had anything to do with someone like Stephen Kearney. Robert continued, quote, It was quite obvious that he was violent towards her and was controlling her, but the more you pushed, the more you were pushing her away, so you had to be very careful about how you dealt with her. Eventually, Robert McLean had stopped calling around to see Amanda as he didn't want to be in the same room as Stephen Carney. According to the same article, Anne, Amanda's mother, said that Stephen Carney had been obsessed with Amanda and that he wouldn't let her out of his sight – but despite his controlling nature, Amanda had thought she would be able to change Carney. She saw the good in everyone and was determined to find the good in her partner, Anne said. Anne also believed that it was possible that there had been a different cause to the argument that the two had had the night Amanda was killed. The Independent reported that Amanda had been given €4,000 by a former employee around the time of her death, and she'd kept it in the flat. Amanda's uncle said that there was evidence that the money had been taken, and Anne Jenkins believed that the fight had been over this money, and that Amanda was going to leave Stephen Kearney over this. In October of 2010, Stephen Kearney brought an appeal against his conviction. He and his lawyers argued that the trial judge had erred when he allowed the jury to see pictures of Amanda Jenkins' body in her apartment the day she was discovered. Though Mr O'Higgins, appearing on behalf of Carney once more, acknowledged that crime scene photographs and photos of deceased victims were admissible in court, he said in practice they were only shown in rare cases. Mr O'Higgins argued that photos like those shown to the jury in Carney's trial were more often thought to be prejudicial, inflammatory and distressing for the jurors. The counsel noted that he had no knowledge of a case where such photos had been admitted before. In addition, Mr O'Higgins argued that the use of the photos was entirely unnecessary, given that the jury had heard evidence from Mary Cassidy, which described the injuries present on Amanda Jenkins' face and neck that the pathologist had observed during post-mortem. Appearing again on behalf of the state, Dermot McGuinness said that the prosecution had sought to have the pictures admitted as evidence in order to address the assertion of Stephen Carney that not only had he not intended to kill or harm Amanda Jenkins, he had not even intended to hurt her that night. However, Carney had said himself that he had seen Miss Jenkins' face turn blue, and therefore the pictures not only established the injury sustained by Amanda Jenkins, but rebutted the notion that Carney had not meant to harm her. Further, Mr McGuinness said that the trial judge had assessed the arguments set out before him and decided the pictures were admissible. They had been weighed against the level of prejudice that would come from the jury seeing them and the trial judge had decided that the prejudice did not outweigh the probative value. The judgment of the appeals court was published in July of 2011, nine months later. Mr Justice Mackin, writing on behalf of the three-judge appeals court, clarified the prosecution's point regarding the introduction of the photos of Amanda's face. Carney, who said he had meant only to frighten Amanda, had admitted to putting his hands around her neck and strangling her, not even stopping when he watched her face bruise and discolour. The judgement stated that the pictures were evidence of probative value. The judgement continued that it may be the case that such photos are not often admitted to trials but there was no legal norm restricting their use so long as their probative value is weighed against their prejudicial. The trial judge had not erred in his decision, and Carney's appeal was rejected. Stephen Breen, crime correspondent for the Irish Sun, revealed in September 2020 that Stephen Kearney had been allowed out of prison to meet members of his family and was at the time preparing for a third hearing before the Parole Board to assess his suitability for release. Anne Jenkins was one of many who supported the paper's campaign, calling on the Minister for Justice at the time to implement the Parole Act of 2019. Despite being passed by the Houses of the Oireachtas and signed into law by the President of Ireland in 2019, the changes outlined in this legislation were not implemented for two years. The parole board was reformulated so that it was now fully independent and made up of experienced professionals from the criminal justice system. The Minister of the Day no longer makes decisions regarding parole, removing politics from the process. Those serving life sentences now have to wait 12 years before going before the parole board, rather than the former term of seven years. The Act also recognised bereaved family members and dependents as victims for the purposes of the Act, and the new parole board is collecting contact details of victims in order to try and ensure that they can, if the person wishes, be contacted ahead of a prisoner's appearance before the parole board. Anne had received just such a communication from the old iteration of the parole board that August and she duly wrote out a letter objecting to Kearney being considered for release. She said that Kearney was a danger to women, that he had lied throughout the trial and rejected Kearney's claim that he had written a letter of apology to her. Anne told the paper that Stephen Kearney had never shown any remorse and that after his conviction she had been abused in the street by friends and associates of the man who blamed her daughter for Kearney ending up in prison. You can hear more of Anne's story in her own words over on the Crime Lapse podcast. The episode is called Stolen Chance. In March of this year, 2022, Anne spoke to the Irish Mirror in response to Minister for Justice Helen McEntee's proposed reforms to the criminal justice system, which could see trial judges setting minimum terms to be served for those who receive life sentences, amongst other changes. Anne welcomed the plans, but for her and her family, it was, quote, too little too late. By this time, Carney had already been moved to the open prison Shelton Abbey in County Wicklow, one step closer to being released on licence. Anne told Paul Healy, quote, I'm the one serving the life sentence, not him. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. A special thanks this week goes out to Vicky Larry, Vanessa Allen, Sabrina Catley, and Dizzy DJ. If you'd like ad-free episodes or bonus episodes, head on over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. With thanks to our sponsor for this week's episode, Calm. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes. I'll be at CrimeCon in London in June. Please come see me. Use the code MENSREA for a lovely discount. Tickets are at crimecon.co.uk. I'll also be at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Dallas, Texas on the 24th to the 27th of August. Visit truecrimepodcastfestival.com to grab your tickets. Our theme music is "Quinn Song, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod, and additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources from today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensareapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And the small hyoid, and the small hyoid, hyoid, <sighs> and the small hyoid bone, and the small hyoid, 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 and the small hyoid bone, and the small hyoid, hyoid bone, blah, 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 blah. and the small hyoid, hyoid, and the small hyoid. Hyoid bone, blah, blah, blah.